Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. I invite you to stand and join me in the call to worship. Reading responsibly. You were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver. Surely he took up our infirmities and carries our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you today that we have come into your presence. We thank you for all that you have done for us and for this opportunity especially to worship and praise you this morning. May all we do here today draw us closer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
great word to begin our worship today. It's so great to see you as we've gathered here this morning. Take a moment and share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others here today in worship. Old Testament reading this morning comes from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring (coughs) into being, I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Now I invite you to stand for the doxology as the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings. Father, we praise and thank you for the many ways that you have materially blessed us. Accept these offerings now as a presentation of our praise and worship to you and use them in ways that are pleasing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Let's join me in the prayer of confession. Almighty God, there is not a gift we have received, a possession we own, or an ability we have developed that has not come from you. Nevertheless, we confess that we are often struggled to trust you to meet our needs. Forgive us for doubting your provision. Remind us daily of the reality that you are our provider and sustainer, and may we live our lives to proclaim this truth. Amen. As we continue in prayer, we want to take some time for some silent prayer and then uh, praying together. And if, as we pray together, if you'd like to come and offer your prayers here at the altar, I invite you to join me. Father, in this moment of silence, help us to sense you, to hear you, see you, speak to us. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for inviting us to pray boldly, honestly. For giving us the courage to relinquish all that we pray about to you. I want to pray your grace upon all who are struggling today with grief or illness, pain, trouble. Pray for... Albert Sadler's family in their time of grief and sorrow, as well as others who this day feel the pain and the sorrow of loss. We know that you are with them. Comfort every need, every aching heart, every burdened soul. We pray that you will heal all of our diseases through the grace and power of who you are. Give hope, courage, healing strength to Bob Jobert, Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buker, to Warren Woolsey, to Bill Getty, to Phil Muker, to Mike Raybuck, to Jill Tyson, to Bruce Brenneman, to Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, to Linda Roth, to Dick Gould, to Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our hearts this morning. 
We thank you, Father, for the ministry of this church and all the various ministries that make up this church. And we thank you especially today for the church library. So many people who use this, uh, use the library to, to learn about you, to be inspired in their walk with you, to, to be, come face to face with you in the lives of people from all over the world in the centuries. We thank you for everyone who is involved in, in making the library and all of its resources available to us. We pray that the, the impact of the library will reach far beyond the doors of this church. We pray also for the churches around us. And this morning, we pray especially for St. Mark's Roman Catholic Church in Rushford. And Father Dennis, who leads them. Pour out your spirit upon this congregation. May they continue to be light in their community and beyond. And we pray for the world. We pray for refugees throughout the world and Particularly the situation in Greece where refugees are perhaps going to be sent back to dangerous places. There's a lot of uncertainty in the midst of uncertainty. Father, we pray for all who live with the threat of epidemics and disasters and uncertainty about the next meal, next drink of water, a safe place to sleep for the night. Bring an end to the suffering and the struggle of so many and make us particularly sensitive to the needs of this world. And even though they don't, may not directly affect us, they're important to us because they're important to you. So give us your heart toward the world. We pray, Father, for those who serve you in the church around the world. Pray for the Seldons and Haiti. And this first year of transition has been challenging. It's been difficult. We pray that you will continue to strengthen them and uphold them, encourage them, every member of their family. We think of our brothers and sisters in India, this great country that has 70 million Christians, but still a pretty small percentage. Lord, the threats and the opposition that so many of the Christians face, and even, even the threat of removing Christian presence in the next five years. Give to our brothers and sisters courage and faith and hope and grace and hearts of love. Even those who oppose them most vehemently would see you and would be changed. Father, continue to open our eyes to your presence among us. Give us grace to continue to trust you, surrender to you. And we ask all of this through the mercy of Christ, who goes to the cross for us and, and who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Our New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? 
To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another person considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever (coughs) eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives our lives alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he proves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please be seated. When we do our greeting time in the middle of service, it's a good chance to see someone you might not have seen for a while, introduce yourself to someone you didn't know, just sort of have a chance to say hello to some folks. But I also think there's something more going on than just that. I hope it is a way of reminding us that being a disciple of Jesus is not just about me and Jesus. And that's very important. It's vitally important. But we are missing something about the heart of the gospel. And we're missing something about the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus if we don't understand our faith in the context of the church. And as we greet one another, we are, we are simply, one of the things we're doing is saying, you being here is important to me, and me being here is important to you, and that's valuable to me. It's what God designed the church to be. Now, when we start talking about our faith as being not just individual and personal, but also being corporate, there is both a blessing and a curse to that. The blessing is that we have folks around us who encourage us, help us, pray for us, support us. We learn from one another. We, we engage one another. We, 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 are, we involve our lives together in a way that hopefully we end up being better followers of Jesus than we would be if we were by ourselves. But the curse of it is, if we're all going to be in this thing together, we have to figure out how we're going to get along with each other. And that's a struggle. Because human beings have a tendency to be self-centered. 
And we have a tendency to see our faith as about my perspective being right and your perspective, if it's different, is wrong. And we see you have this whole history of the church of people getting to the place where they say what you think and believe is so different from me that I can't live with that anymore. And, I, and one of us is going to have to go another way. Now, some of those divisions and splits that have taken place were deeply theological. They were important and probably necessary because they were about core things of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, let's be honest. There are a lot of splits that have taken place in the church that have anything to do with core theological things. You know, it, as someone said to me years ago, if you, if you were to put a motto on the history of the church, it might be divide and conquer. Because that's sort of how it fear, feels sometimes. You know, we, when we teach membership class, we have this tree of just the Methodist movement. And there are probably 30 different churches that have come out of just that movement that started in the mid-18th century. Much less you keep going back further than that. We have a tendency to divide. And, and there are all kinds of stories. You know, there, there are some churches that uh, have practiced the practice foot washing on a regular basis. And there has been splits over which foot you wash first, the right or the left. And it's that important that we can't be in fellowship with each other anymore. Or how we do baptism, and not just do you immerse or sprinkle or pour, but if you immerse, do you immerse the person once or three times? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's too important to us to stay together. We're going to have to go our separate ways. I I heard about a church, uh, actually visited a church years ago. That had just built a new fellowship hall. Beautiful, state-of-the-art kitchen. It was a wonderful place to gather as the church and to do meals and and dinners. And and the problem was there was a pretty large contingent of the church who thought it was inappropriate, if not sinful, to cook and eat food in the church building. And that carried over into the life of the church so much so that in the worship service... The kitchen users sat on this side and the kitchen refusers sat on this side. I kid you not. And, and, you know, just think about all these ways in which we find things to divide ourselves. And most of the time, or at least a good part of the time, it's not about core theological things. It's about what Wesley called opinions. It's, it's about our perceptions. It's about what God has done for us and what God has said to us about how we live our lives. And we so often take what God has said to us and canonize it for everyone. But we aren't the first people to do that. It's been going on a long time. In fact, I think it's, it's at the heart of what Paul is writing here in Romans 14. And he says, you know, people, you have to accept each other. Instead of getting into fights about this. These are not core things. It's not that they're unimportant. They're just not that important that you fight about them. And he uses two examples here. He talks about holy days and how we view days. And he says, for some folks, one day of the week is special. It's holy. And the other days are normal. And for other people, every single day is a holy day. Well, both ways are good. And So stop fighting about it. And if you think it's one, fine. If you think it's the other, fine. Let's move on. The bigger argument is about food. 
And, and the food issue is probably related to both Jews and Gentiles who are Christians. And you know, for the Jews, they have all these dietary laws in the Old Testament about how you, how you, what you eat, how you eat it, and, and all these rules about it. And they take those very seriously because it really is what defines you as a follower of Yahweh. You know, it's, it's, we look at it and think, well, that was great for that time, and, but, you know, it doesn't really have any bearing. But for them, it, it identifies you as a follower of Yahweh if you eat the food right or not, if you follow the rules. And that was a lot of, I, that was a lot of what was going on as Jesus begins to challenge some of that in the New Testament. But they, you follow the rules, and that's how you know who followers of Yahweh are. And if you're not following Yahweh's rules that he gave us, then... How can you possibly be a follower of Yahweh? And so you have these Jewish people who are Christians, and now come the Gentiles who don't know anything about those, and the Gentiles feel no obligation to those rules. But because the Jewish Christians do, they are saying, you need to follow these rules too. And it's becoming difficult. But you have the other side of it as well, where you have the Gentiles who have spent their lives going to temples and sacrificing meat to idols, and they cut off some of it for the priests and the rest of it they sell to vendors who take it to the marketplace and they sell it to everybody else. And you take it home and you eat it for your dinner. And for those folks, having grown up in that environment and knowing the, the, the pagan elements of, of the idolatry of the temple, it bothers them. And they don't think anyone should eat that. And there, but there is a segment of the church, seems to be, who's saying, what's the big deal? Now, some of the folks have solved that by just saying, we're just going to eat vegetables. There are no sacrificial things about vegetables. There's no broccoli sacrifice that you find. You know, it, it, you can eat vegetables. That doesn't seem to be an issue. But there are folks who are saying, to play it safe, you should only eat vegetables. Because you don't know if that meat came from the idol, came from the temple or not. You aren't sure if that's the right meat that the that the Jewish people think you can or can't eat. So you just stick with this, and that's what everyone should do. And the problem is, whatever position people are taking, they are saying, this is what should be done for everyone, and I will fight you about it. It's that important to me. Now, I think we could probably, I, I would be surprised, if our issue was about food, and meat offered to idols and Old Testament laws, but there are lots of other things that we do the same thing about. How we worship. How we interpret uh, certain passages of Scripture. How we, um, what we think about um, certain peripheral kinds of doctrines. Things that you, uh, rules that you can and can't do. And every group of Christians has a different set of them. But this is, what, this is the norm. This is what we believe is what it means to be a Christian. And if you do these things or you don't do these things, then your, your faith is suspect. And so we have to make sure you know you're wrong because we're right. And Paul says, you're killing the church. He says, the problem is it's, it's becoming a stumbling block. You got all these people who haven't been Christians very long. They haven't really, they don't really have the foundation of things. And, and so they're being torn apart by this and they're being confused. And some of them may even just give up altogether. Because you keep putting these things in front of them and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you can't do this. 
And by the way, you have to do that. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the core gospel about being a follower of Jesus. It just seems to be um, societal. It seems to be it seems to be your opinion about it, but we're going to make it bigger than that. And it's causing them ruin, he says. The word ruin has the really idea of destroy. It is it's it's used in in ancient Greek to talk about like a disease that enters your body or or uh, rot in wood or rust on iron. It's destructive. It's the word that's used to describe what Herod wants to do to the infant Jesus. It's actually a term in Revelation, a form of it, that's used to describe Satan, the great destroyer. And Paul is saying, you realize that this mindset you have, this attitude to fight about these, these non-essentials are, are ruining people. But here's the thing that we, I missed for a long time in this passage, was he's not just saying it's about ruining those people who are weak. It's also about stumbling and ruining for me. He says in verses 10 and 11 and 12 about judgment. And he says, don't you know the judgment's coming? And we're all going to stand before God. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to answer for is, did our behavior cause people to stumble? Did our our belligerent spirit about these non-essentials create an atmosphere in which people said, I don't think I want to be a part of that anymore. And that's pretty heavy on us. And he says in verse 20, what you're doing, he said, don't let your, your thoughts about food tear the church apart. And that's what ultimately happens. The church gets torn apart. And it's really about our witness. See, it's not just about what happens inside the walls of the church. It's how, what, how people perceive us and, and how we treat each other. Jesus says, they'll know you're Christians if you love each other. And I've had so many people through the years, I go different places and talk to them about the churches in the area. And they'll say to me, people all the time will say, that church has a bad reputation. Really? Why? Because they're always fighting with each other. And we don't want to be a part of that. It's destructive. I think it, it really comes down to making the decision... That people, relationships, witness, our attitude is more important than proving to people that we're right. And we probably are right. You know, we've been in this longer. We know more. We've figured out some stuff that other people haven't figured out. There's a good chance we're right. But because people are more important, because relationships, because our witness is more important, we don't have to prove that to people. I look at at all the times in the Gospels when Jesus, who is the only person ever lived, who was always perfectly right, how many times he allows himself to be misunderstood and misrepresented and could have challenged people about, I'm right, and proved it, And he doesn't. Because it would have been counterproductive to what he was trying to do. And ultimately, they go to the cross. And here is Jesus on the cross. And they're saying to him, if you're really the son of God, come down here. He really is the son of God. And he could have come down and proved to them that he was the son of God. But then he wouldn't have been able to accomplish what the cross accomplishes. 
And so he allows himself to be misunderstood and misrepresented for the greater good. And I think there's something of that calling for us. A lot of it is just deciding that we're more interested in in helping other people than we are in saying the things that we feel like we want to say. One of the things that Haddon Robinson used to tell us when when I was working, uh, taking classes from him in preaching, he would say, uh, you need to ask a question every week of your sermon. You ask a lot of questions, but this is one. Is this something that people need to hear or something that you want to say? And there are some weeks where there are things that I really want to say. But I'm not sure that it's in the best interest of us as a congregation. And, and you know, you, there is that mindset of what's in their best interest. I, in this passage from Isaiah, chapter 42, listen again to just the opening verses. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He is God's representative and he's right. And what does he do? He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. It's not because he couldn't. It's just not in the best interest of everyone to understand who God is and to come to faith in God. And that really is the bottom line for Jesus. What do I need to do to be to, so that people will know most clearly who God is and how much God loves them and open their hearts to him? And I think that's our calling as well. The problem with that is, with all of this, of course, is that That means we have to figure out a way to exist with complexity and with differences and messiness. You know, what we would like, I think, probably most of us would say, it's far better if we all just thought the same things about everything. Let's just all, we're a church that, that everyone agrees about every single thing. Now, I think there's a couple things about that. One is we would never be challenged to think new things. And I'm pretty sure that would be a very small church. You know, it reminds me of the, the um, apocryphal story, I'm sure, of the guy who was stranded on a desert island by himself. And they, and they came to rescue him. They, he was taking them and show you what he'd done. He'd been there for years. And he showed there was a hut with a little steeple on top. And he said, what's this? He goes, this is the church where I attend. And right next to it was another hut with another steeple on top of it. And he said, what's that? He goes, that's the church I used to attend. (laughs) Even when it's just us, we can't get along with ourselves, right? You know, we... But here's here's the thing. Our calling is not to control things. Our calling is to trust God in the midst of the complexity and the struggle... And the differences. Because the reality is, we learn far more from people who are different than us. Think differently. See things differently. Than from people who think exactly like us. That's how God teaches us. That's the way our minds work. That's how we get better. And I find it interesting that Paul, in the end, says, this isn't just a good idea. 
living this way, thinking this way, acting this way, honors Christ. It brings honor to God because the church is being the church. Because the church is more concerned about other people than than just my own opinion. Because it's forcing us to trust him. When you get into a situation where people think differently and there's the potential for great conflict, it's in those moments where our willingness and our ability and our desire to trust God is really tested. But it's also a time that when we trust him, amazing things come out of it. And God is honored. And our witness is what God wants it to be. And people look at the church and say, boy, you know, for a group of people who are so diverse, wow, they love each other. I think I might like to know more about that. And that brings honor to God. That's our calling. Really what Paul's talking about is, is what he says in verse 15. He says, what I really want from you is to act, to walk, In the love of Christ. That's really what all of this is. It's really just being like Jesus. It's living our life as as followers of Jesus. In the spirit of the love of Jesus. That kind of love that goes to the cross. It isn't because Jesus needed to go to the cross. But we did. And he goes to the cross in the spirit of sacrifice. And love. And compassion and grace. And it seems to me that what we really need is a new vision of the cross. And, and not so, maybe not of the cross as if we're looking at it, but really a vision from the cross. That we begin to see other people the way Jesus does. And I think the foundation of that is coming to see and to remember That anything good in our lives, anything that we accomplish, anything of maturity in us is only because of the grace of God in Christ. As we talked a few weeks ago, Jesus doesn't go to the cross because we're so wonderful. He goes to the cross because we're all sinners. And we need him. And remembering that... That anything good in us is about the cross is a wonderful way to keep ourselves humble. And to hopefully allow God to work in us so that we look at other people the way he does. So that we take stands about the things that are most vital, most core, most essential. And the other things, we share our opinions, we talk about it, we we learn from one another... But it doesn't divide us. And we don't judge other people. And we don't put demands on other people. Because as Paul says, who are we to tell anyone about how to, how to be, the, how to be uh, what to do with their servants? And I think what he's really saying is, these people are all God's servants. And who are we to tell God how to treat his servants? But that comes back to the cross. Because the ground at the cross is level. We all come to the cross. We all need the cross. We all need the grace of God. And that truth, as Paul says, you know, look at people as they are. People for whom Christ died. And when we see people with those eyes, with that kind of vision, it changes us. 
And so as we come to this table this morning, we come to this table not because we figured everything out. Not because we realize we're right about every single thing. Or because we've somehow deserved it. We come to this table because we recognize that the grace of God has been offered to us. And we want it. And in that grace, we want to be the kind of people to one another that Christ has called us to be. And gives us the grace to be. As witnesses of his life in us. I don't know exactly what has come to your mind as you're thinking about this this morning. What circumstance, what situation, what idea, what perspective, maybe what person that you find really difficult to reconcile. It's not, it's not a core issue. It's important to you, but it's not a core issue. We're going to take a few moments of silence to listen to God. And have the opportunity to to turn that over to him. And to ask again for his grace to change us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your grace and mercy upon us. Forgive us when we have allowed some of these non-essentials to divide us, and to cause us to be arrogant and proud and judgmental, instead of like Christ, loving humble. Keep working in us. Father, we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we're about to partake this morning. As we eat and drink, may it be food for our souls. May we sense you at work in our hearts as we receive these gifts. We ask this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We are receiving communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I also have gluten-free wafers here and cups. And if you would like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to the grace of God and desire for the grace of God to fill you and to change you, and you want to walk in fellowship with one another, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. See?
Let's stand and uh, join together in the closing Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.